Welcome to the Engines of Texan, Episode 6, The Iron Horse. I'm Brandon C. Twenty-one-year-old John Warren Gates came to San Antonio for the first time in 1876, when San Antonio had already been the center of the region's ranching culture for 150 years. But San Antonio's stockmen in 1876 were still open-range stockmen, rounding up their cattle when they could, but otherwise leaving them turned out in the general vicinity of their ranches when they couldn't. Losses to theft, appropriation, and honest just wandering off were probably pretty high because fences were unheard of, because fences were expensive. Split rail and dry-stacked stone fences were time-consuming to deploy and expensive to maintain. And in the land of the South Texas scrub brush, most landowners were lucky to even have a corral. But when John Gates rode into San Antonio in 1876, he brought with him an innovation that would transform the Texas landscape. He brought with him a spool of drawn wire, of twin wires actually, intertwined with each other and with little barbs woven in between. This invention was, in Gates' words, quote, light as air, stronger than whiskey, and cheap as dirt, end quote. And Gates set out to prove it. Gates went out into Military Plaza, which was empty at the time, and strung up several strands of this barbed wire between trees or posts or some buildings or something. It's unclear to me what he anchored them to, only that the wire was nearly invisible to the growing crowd of onlookers other than the sunlight glinting off the little barbs every few inches. Gates then led a herd of famously ornery Texas Longhorn cattle into his makeshift corral, closed them in, and then started getting them worked up. He and a helper whooped and hollered and slapped the ground with their handkerchiefs as the puzzled Longhorns tried to move away. Only the Longhorns started to realize that they couldn't escape. Every direction they turned, they bounced off of this invisible devil's rope, as it came to be called. The Longhorns started to panic. They tried to stampede, but they ended up just running in circles. They tested the wire a few times, spun around a few more, and then eventually gave up and calmed down. Gates's demonstration was so successful and so memorable that podcasters are still talking about it today. And that's probably what you want this story to be about. How barbed wire made the cattle business boom and how the cattle business became an engine of Texas history. But the data doesn't really back that up. For the 10 years following the introduction of barbed wire in Texas, 1875 to 1885, call it, something like 3 million head of Texas cattle were driven to northern markets, selling at an average price of about $10 a head delivered to the railhead in Kansas. That's $30 million of gross product, which is not nothing. But that's less revenue than Texas cotton raisers produced on an average year. And in fact, in the year 1900, cotton producers in Texas received more for their crop than cattlemen had been paid for all of their livestock in the previous 28 years combined. The story of cattle ranching in Texas, in fact, has almost always been a story of retreat. Or better said, cattle's highest and best use was as a way to hold land until the cotton farmers could get to it. Indeed, I'd argue that even more significant for the penetration of barbed wire into Texas agricultural markets was the vehicle that brought that barbed wire to Texas. Recall that 1877 the year after Gates did his famous demonstration in Military Plaza, was the year that the railroad actually reached San Antonio. And the railroad 
is what radically changed the economics of the delivery of all kinds of goods, from barbed wire to cattle to cotton itself. Texas was a latecomer to the railroad game. The first railroad in Texas was the Buffalo Bayou, Brazos, and Colorado Railroad in 1853, when there was already 10,000 miles of railroad in the rest of the United States installed and operating. It didn't help that Texas, like many other southern states, was supremely suspicious of railroads and the corporations that funded them, because most of them were financed with English or northern capital. To mitigate this, the antebellum Texas legislature placed extremely restrictive conditions on the charters of the few Texas railroad companies that were formed that in some cases went so far as to allow the state government to take over these companies at the end of their charter. These policies served their purpose a little too well, deterring both foreign capital and the railroads that they wanted to build. Texas had built only 468 miles of railroad before the Civil War, as compared to 22,000 miles in the northern states alone. Of course, the Civil War slowed down this development even more, followed by the Panic of 1873, a double blow that left the average Texan poorer in the 1870s than he had been in the 1840s. And yet, Texas was a railroader's dream. It was largely flat, its rivers were few and small, and its large distances meant that it stood to benefit more than many other places from reducing the economic costs of that distance. And after the Civil War, something changed. Texas, in contrast now to many other southern states, implemented a relatively generous policy of granting land and fee simple to railroad developers, like the federal U.S. government had started doing. The state of Texas began offering eight sections or square miles of land to railroad companies for each mile of track laid, and eventually increased this to 16 sections per mile. Again, this stood in contrast to the models of other southern state governments that tended to view their lands as inalienable assets that were best rented out rather than sold off. And in a way, the southern model resembled the old Spanish model, which was consistently stingy with patenting lands into private hands. In all the years of Spanish and Mexican rule, only 15% or so of Texas's lands were released by the sovereign. And indeed, this was a major grievance at Tejanos and a high-priority action item for the new Republic of Texas government, which sold off more land in its first two years of independence than Spain and Mexico had done in the 100 years prior. So there was good cultural precedent for using the state's lands to develop the state. And over the first two decades of railroad development in Texas, the state would grant out 32 million acres to railroads, which represented something like a quarter of all lands in the Texas public domain at the time. Now, to be clear, this was not a universally popular policy. And it seems to have stood only because it ideologically split both of the major political parties at the time. The Republican legislature at first supported it over the opposition of the Republican governor, and there were just enough Democrats in favor of the policy to preserve it when they took over at the end of Reconstruction over the protests of some rather vocal critics of that policy within their own party. The policy seems to have been effective, however. Texas saw 4,548 miles of railroad built between 1875 and 1885, which constituted something like one-third of the entire trackage laid in the Old South during that same period. And in fact, by 1885, Texas had surpassed every former Confederate state in terms of railroad trackage and in terms of its state population, 
even passing Tennessee and Virginia, which was pretty remarkable given that Texas had ranked third to last in population of the 11th state confederacy at the start of the Civil War. And even after the state government stopped giving out land to railroad developers, railroad construction continued. By 1904, Texas had more trackage than any state in the United States, a distinction that it has held ever since. The economic payoff was enormous at both the micro and the macro level. Before the railroad, overland freight moved mostly by ox train. Wagons with great creaking oak tree cross sections for wheels pulled by as many as 16 oxen yoked by their horns lumbered across long muddy trails slowly and expensively. Some days, 150 teams a day would enter cities like San Antonio and Houston, but each was limited to maybe one to 4,000 pounds apiece. And in some cases, a quarter or more of that consisted of the feed that they had to carry with them just to feed the oxen. Freight costs by ox train seemed to pretty consistently hover around $1 per 100 pounds per 100 miles, or about 20 cents per ton mile to use a modern term. And this was back at a time when a ton of cotton sold for maybe $400. So moving that ton 200 miles overland would have cost you $40, shaving 10% off of your final price where that 10% might have represented your entire profit margin. The railroads cut that rate by almost two-thirds. Imagine if your gas prices fell by two-thirds overnight. And by 1900, in fact, freight rates had fallen by almost 95% to something like one cent per ton mile, a 20x improvement. You can't attribute all of Texas's growth during the last decades of the 19th century to the railroad, but there's a pretty strong correlation. Here are some numbers. In 1860, Texas had 311 miles of railroads, 600,000 people, and total assessed value of property of $111 million, not including enslaved peoples. By 1890, those numbers were 5,410 miles of railroad, 2.2 million people, and $886 million of total assessed property. It's even more pronounced when you look at the population growth in major cities. Austin grew from 4,000 to 11,000 people in just nine years after the railroad arrived. Waco, from 3,000 to 7,000. Dallas County grew from 13,000 people to 33,000 people in the first six years of being railroad connected, and then to 67,000 people 10 years after that. Between 1880 and 1890, Texas counties with new railroads saw their population grow on average 200%. Counties without, by contrast, grew only 40%. And indeed, much of the map of Texas population centers today is the map of so-called common point railroad towns from 1890. Think Amarillo, Fort Worth, Waco, Tyler, Victoria, and once again, and especially, Dallas. Economically speaking, that growth from $111 million of assessed value to $886 million of assessed value over a 30-year period represents more than a 7% compounded annual growth rate. But that's deceiving, because actually, most of that growth had been in the last 15 years of that period. Remember, the Civil War and the Panic of 1873 had been double whammies that destroyed a lot of wealth in Texas. So really, if we're looking at the period from 1875 to 1890, we should say that the railroads created something like a 15% compounded annual economic growth rate for the state of Texas during those years. Even in the age of the internet, we have never seen anything like that in our lifetime. And the railroad created whole new industries, 
the railroad infrastructure of East Texas allowed for and demanded the growth of a large East Texas lumber industry. For 30 years or so, it was Texas cypress trees that shingled the American South until they were so overharvested that lumbermen had to look to other species and just in time, chemists developed a process that made southern pine suitable for paper. By 1900, lumber made up a quarter of railroad tonnage in Texas, more than cotton, cattle, and wheat combined. But that was only in terms of tonnage. Cotton remained the cash crop and was the largest revenue generator on the railroads until 1928. It was sort of a self-perpetuating cycle. By reducing freight costs by 95% in some cases, railroads made enormous swaths of Texas economic for cotton raising, which in turn created more volume of cotton that railroads could move, which in turn incentivized railroads to lay more rail lines to access these other cotton raising areas. Cotton raising moved into increasingly marginal lands, which yielded less cotton per acre, but in many cases still covered the marginal costs of raising that cotton. Total acreage under the plow in Texas grew from 18 million acres in 1870 to 126 million acres in 1900, which, by the way, is about where it sits today. That's a 7x increase. And yet, over the same period, the total value of farm products grew from $49 million to $209 million. An impressive increase for sure, but only a 4x increase demonstrating how yields were decreasing as farmers entered these more marginal lands. And yet land prices generally reflected the value creation that was going on. East Texas lands, which Stephen F. Austin had sold for 12.5 cents an acre in the 1820s, now sold for $5 an acre in 1870 and almost $100 an acre in 1900. Railroads made Texans wealthier than they had ever been. And they brought labor-saving and efficiency-improving implements like riding plows, threshers, mechanical harvesters, and soon tractors, which, taken together, lifted the standard of living of most Texans far beyond anything that their parents could have imagined. And Texans hated the railroads for it. Sure, it was cheaper to get your cotton to market, but why was it that freight rates always seemed to go up around harvest time? And fine, new people were flooding into Texas, which indirectly boosted the economy, but most farmers just noticed the increasing land prices and property taxes. As a percentage, land ownership in Texas during this period declined by about 10%, as small landowners increasingly became tenant farmers. And all this while the railroads were getting land for free? Texas farmers, which is what the vast majority of Texan heads of household were in 1890, were not capitalists. They had little appreciation for the nuances of supply and demand that naturally drove up freight prices when everybody tried to ship their product at harvest time. And they weren't particularly sympathetic to the fact that these railroads required coordination and capital on scales that had really never been seen before in human history, at least not by private entities. All of which may be surprising to people who today think of Texas as a beacon of free market boosterism. But what Texas farmers were responding to in the 1890s was a sense that Texas's was still a colonial economy. And in this they were right. Texans exported commodities at low margins and imported finished goods on which they paid high margins. And all of this on railroads owned by people who mostly didn't live in Texas. Actually, one of the few railroad owners who did make Texas his home was John Warren Gates, the barbed wire guy. 
Gates did well in barbed wire, but Gates did really well in railroads. Coming to control the Kansas City, Pittsburgh, and Gulf Railroad in 1899, which had as its terminus on the Gulf Coast a little town called Port Arthur, where Gates eventually moved. But Gates was the exception that proved the rule. In 1890, Texas was home to 125ths of the nation's population, but accounted for only 1 109th of its output. Texas's status as the seventh largest state in terms of population was also a wildly misleading statistic. In terms of revenue collections returned to the U.S. Treasury in 1891, Texas was something like 27th. Texans still didn't have a homegrown capital base in the 1890s, and so it's unsurprising that Texans turned against the capitalists. The 1870s and 1880s saw the rise of small farmers' political power with the formation of the Grange Movement and the Farmers' Alliance, neo-Jeffersonian movements that idealized the small family farm in contrast to the heartlessness of big English and Northeastern corporations. The Farmers' Alliance would eventually count some 80,000 members in Texas, a shocking number when you realize that there were only 250,000 white heads of household in the state. And actually, the White Farmers' Alliance paled in comparison to the so-called Colored Farmers' Alliance. Founded in Texas, the Colored Farmers' Alliance eventually numbered 1.2 million heads of household across the South, a staggering number. Movements like these would later morph into the populist movements at the turn of the 20th century. They called for the formation of a state-owned farmers' bank, or at least for the Postal Service to take over banking rather than leaving it in the hands of private groups. They called for the direct issuance of currency without any banking intermediaries. They called for a graduated income tax to reduce the state's reliance on property taxes, and some, at least, called for the state ownership of all railroads. Banks and railroads were able to blunt the force of some of these initiatives at the statehouse, but the movement still passed a string of anti-banking, anti-corporation, and especially heavy-handed railroad legislation. Anti-railroad sentiment in Texas would culminate in 1891 in the formation of the Texas Railroad Commission. For many years, it was, in truth, the state's only functioning regulatory agency, which meant that a decade later, it would be called on to become the de facto regulator of a brand new industry that would, for the first time, begin concentrating capital in Texas. And it's striking to see how differently Texans thought about and regulated an industry that they came to view as theirs. I'm talking, of course, about oil, the state's next great engine of history and the engine that would finally dethrone cotton and propel Texas into a post-colonial economy. On the next episode of The Engines of Texas. Thank you for listening. For this episode, I relied on a comprehensive 1941 history of Texas railroads written by a railroader named S.G. Reed. It's not a light read by any reckoning, but as an infrastructure guy myself, I always enjoy the contributions of practitioners to the study of the fields that they work in. This season is brought to you by the 11th Street River House in Bandera, Texas. Sort of. My wife and I have dreamed for years about owning a place in Bandera, and we finally bought a house there last year. Four blocks from the bars, three blocks from the Frontier Times Museum, with 120 feet of Medina River frontage and a collection of historic Texas maps on the wall, curated by yours truly. It's a great place to spend a weekend and to sort of indirectly support this podcast. Look it up under 11th Street River House on Airbnb or on VRBO. 
Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. Stephen Bennett also composed and performed the theme music. You can find more about Stephen at info at nosomedia, N-O-S-O-Media.com. David Moore designed the cover art for this season. You can find him at illustrationonline.com. For more information on our sources and other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com.